right, if you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Luke 21. It's the last time we'll say that as far as in this study of the book of Luke. Um, We'll wrap up chapter 21 today. So 21 down, 3 to go. Uh, 24 chapters, so we'll launch into chapter 22 uh, next Sunday. But this morning we'll look at um, verses 29 through 38 here of Jesus' end times teaching, teaching about the future. Um, let's pretend for a minute that your birthday is coming up, maybe it is coming up, and you are rummaging through some drawers in your in your home, and you come across a folder that has your name, says so-and-so, so mine would say Andy's surprise party. <laughs> and of course you put it right back. No, you take it out and you look inside and you see all the details of the surprise party that someone is planning for, and you find out the exact time. And the location, and it's, I mean, it's got maps and everything about where they're going to take you to get you away from the house so that everyone can show up and what time you're going to come back and all day. I mean, you've got it planned out. They've got it planned out, and now you know everything that is going to happen for your surprise party. Rewind and pretend instead of finding a folder, you just overhear someone say something about a surprise party that's coming. And that's all you know is that something's coming. You have no idea when. Maybe it'll be on the actual day. Maybe it'll be before. Maybe it'll be a little later. But you have this general idea that something's going to happen. And so you change how you act. So when, you know, your husband or wife says, hey, let's go to the grocery store. Let's go to this place. You think, okay, I'll go. I wouldn't normally, but I think she's trying to get me out of the house. So I'll go with you to the groceries. So it would change how you act. Now, let's draw a parallel here to Luke 21. Luke 21 is not a folder with all the details of exactly what is going to happen in the end. It doesn't spell out times and dates and everything exactly that's going to happen. But it does give us this idea that something's coming, that someone is coming, that Jesus is going to return, and some general ideas about what that's going to be like. Now, if I had the folder, the detailed folder, I I probably wouldn't necessarily change much of my actions because I know exactly what's coming. But if I have a general idea that a surprise party is coming... I might change the way that I think and interpret different things. And in a sense here, that's what's going on is Jesus is telling us it's coming. I'm coming. Now, in light of that, I'm not going to give you all the details, but you need to live in light of it. And that's going to change the way that you walk through life, the way that you think about things. I think the point as Jesus draws this all to a close is this. The end is certainly coming. It's certain. The end is certainly coming. So watch and pray. So we're going to think about those two ideas, that the certainty of the events that are coming and how it should change how we live. If we know that Christ is coming back, that he's coming to set up his kingdom here on earth, that, that everything will be destroyed and Christ's kingdom will be fully established here on earth, that should change how we think and how we live, shouldn't it? Jesus is going to be very clear about exactly how that will change. This is for everyone. If you don't think so, look at verse 35 of of Luke 21. For it, speaking about what is coming, speaking about the day that is to come, will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, which is another way of saying everyone. Everyone is going to be affected by the return of Christ. No one will be excluded from that category and so this is for everyone and we must take heed to what jesus says here so 
we're going to start in verse 28, but before that, go back with me. Let's summarize the passage, okay? So it starts, remember, it opens, and the disciples are doing what? They're looking at the temple. Look how beautiful this, this is. Look at these huge stones, Jesus. And Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. It's all coming down. And the disciples ask two questions. When and what will be the sign of these things that are going to happen? And slowly Jesus answers those questions. He says it's going to be a, a time of, of distress and, and destruction. He says it's going to be a time of persecution and, and witness. And he explains all of these things that are going to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem. But then he says that there will be a sign. Remember he said in verse 21, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the time has come. And we saw that all these things were fulfilled. When, when the, the Roman Titus came and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem, we saw that, that Jesus was making it clear that Jerusalem is no longer a place of refuge. It's no longer a place of, of hope and salvation. So we saw that, this fulfillment that came. And then in verse 25, Jesus starts looking forward to the days that are to come at the return of the Son of Man. Remember, a big part of what he's doing is drawing this distinction. Everyone thought if the temple's destroyed, that's the end of the world. And Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed, but that's not the end of the world. My coming and the end of all things and the coming of the kingdom is still future. And that's what we find in verses 25 through 28. So with those things in mind, that was a very quick summary. Look at verse 29. And he, Jesus, told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Thus, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So verses 29 through 33, I think the big thing that Jesus is trying to tell us is it talk about the certainty of his words. So we'll just think about the certainty of Jesus' words. We've struck this note a lot, haven't we, in this passage, but I think it bears repeating that Jesus' words here are certain, and he's saying these things that I said will happen will happen. The parable in verse 29 talks about a fig tree and then all trees and how new growth says that summer is coming, right? That's, that's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? So it's the idea that when you see buds on a tree, it signals that seasons are about to change. Spring is, is coming. It's not hard to remember the snowy days of this past winter, right? It's not that long ago that there was lots of snow on the ground. And yet, even in the midst of that, as that snow began to melt, you could walk outside and you could see buds on trees. And, and you knew this isn't going to last forever. Yes, right now it's cold. It's dark. The days 
are short, but you can look at that tree and know that spring is coming. So even out of that snow, the green stems, daffodils were breaking through. We had our daffodils come up too early, (laughs) and then they died. But we know that when we see these things, winter will not last forever, right? There's a singer-songwriter, his name is Jason Gray. He wrote a song called Everything Sad is Coming Untrue, which is based on a a line from Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, where Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Isn't that a great thought? This is the, the song that he wrote. He said, it's in the way the shadows hide when the sun begins to rise and the way the world comes alive at the first hint of spring. The frozen rivers run. The death of winter comes undone. Whispers of kingdom come while the bluebird sings. Everything, everything that I thought I knew, everything, everything sad is coming untrue. Jesus tells us that that. When we see the buds, when we see these signs, it's a signal that spring is coming, that, that the end is coming. And these signs of verses 25 through 28 are this sign that the Son of Man will soon return and everything will be made right. All the sad things in the world will come untrue and the kingdom will be established fully and finally. It's interesting because those thorns, the, 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 the signs of verses 25 through 28 don't look like leaves, do they? They look like thorns. They look like terrible things. But Jesus says that they are actually signs that the end is coming, that good things are coming, that, that soon Christ will return. That's a clear parable, isn't it? That when we see these signs, we know that the end is coming. Crystal clear. It's, 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 it's easy to understand which is the total opposite of what verse 32 is. It is unclear and hard to understand, at least for us. It's difficult. What's he say there? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. I think we need to take some time and think about this, so we're going to go deep for a minute here and try to understand exactly what this phrase means. Some would simply say, Jesus got it wrong. This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Jesus has not returned yet, which is what verses 25 through 28 say is going to happen. Therefore, Jesus was mistaken. He didn't know what he was talking about. I don't think that's true. Especially given how certain his his understanding of the destruction of Jerusalem was, it would seem that he knows these other things as well. So as we think about this, we're assuming that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And we have to define what all things means and what this generation means. Those are the two things we've got to figure out to understand this. The, let's first think about it in terms of this all things refers to everything that's in verses 8 all the way through verse 28. That would be the immediate context, right? So the destruction of Jerusalem all the way till the return of Christ. All these things will happen. This generation will not pass away until all of this happens. So if it's referring to the coming of the Son of Man, then that generation can't have been the generation past, right? Because the Son of Man has not returned. So who is this generation? Who could it be? Let me give you some thoughts that are not original to me. One thought, and if you have an NIV, there's going to be a note at the bottom. It's got a, you might have like a little note that says, check down here, and, it, and it's translated, they say, or race. It could mean race. This word generation could mean race, which would some people would say refers to, to 
um, to the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people as an ethnic group would exist until the end. It's one way to think about it. I don't think that makes a lot of sense because there's no indication in this passage that Jesus makes about that about the Jewish people disappearing. So Jesus would, in a sense, be answering a question that no one was asking. The, the, that this generation, the Jewish people, will not pass away. I don't know that he's really addressing that necessarily. Um, it could be. I also, I think the whole tone of the passage is, is towards the whole world at this point, not just the particular people of Israel. And add to that that this word for generation is usually referring to a time period. It's referring to to a generation that, that it lives for a certain period of time, not to a particular race. So I don't know that that's, there are very smart people that think that that is what it is, and they very well could be right. Here's option number two about who this generation is. It could just be human beings in general. This generation, because generation is often referred to as a, an evil and perverse generation. You know, that's, that's, so this, this evil generation, this, the human beings living in sin and doing evil, that that will exist. Wicked people will continue in this world until the return of Christ. That's a possibility. It kind of removes any kind of a time element, though, doesn't it? Because that seems to be what he's, he's talking about, timing of things. This generation will not pass away until all this has been fulfilled. That's an option. Here's another option. Who's this last generation? It could be the last generation before the return of Christ. So this generation referring to those that are alive just before Christ returns. Now that, that could sound like a cop-out of sorts, right? Of course they're the last generation. Because, I mean, of course they're going to be there when Jesus returns because they're the last generation. Doesn't that totally make sense? But I think the force of this would be that, that when the end comes, it's going to happen fast. So when these signs occur, verses 25 through 28, they will begin and they will end before a generation is up. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out process, but rather the generation that sees the beginning of those signs will also see the return of Christ. Does that make sense? So if we could draw a parallel, those that, that saw the events of, uh, they saw the persecution, they saw the distress and whatnot that happened before the destruction of Jerusalem, also saw the destruction of Jerusalem. It happened within a generation. And so what this would mean is that this generation, this final generation, will see both the sign of his coming and his coming. It will occur in that same generational period. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this is really hard. And, and, and no one can be too dogmatic. But let me give you what actually a totally different thought on it that as I was running yesterday listening to Alistair Begg explain it, I thought, I really like that because I think that's the plainest reading of the text. And it has less to do with who this generation is and more to do with what all things means. The most natural reading of that text, if you say this generation, Jesus is talking and he says this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Who is that referred to? I think it refers to the people there, right? Doesn't that, That's the most natural reading to me. Okay, so if that's the case, then what do the all things mean? Well, what's the nature of this passage? Jesus is all over the place as far as timing goes, isn't he? He says this is going to happen before, but, but not before this, and then this is going to happen, and then we're going to talk about all the way in the future. So he's kind of, he's shifting all over the place. So 
if all things doesn't ref, doesn't include verses 25 through 28, but simply refers to verses 8 through 24, which describes the destruction of Jerusalem, doesn't it make sense that Jesus would say, this generation will not pass away until all these things, of verses 8 through 24, the destruction of Jerusalem, take place? In other words, I'm not giving you an exact time, but I'm telling you it will happen within this generation that Jerusalem will be destroyed. What really, I think, helps that is what's the question that they ask in verse 7? They asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? What are the, these things that they're talking about? They're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so is Jesus answering their question clearly here? He's saying, listen, I'm not going to tell you. Ex- he, because one of the questions was the sign. What was the other question? When? He hasn't really answered that yet. Is this his answer? He says, this generation will not pass away until it's all taken place. So again, it's like that surprise party. You don't know the exact day, but it's going to happen sometime soon. And Jesus says, listen, it's going to happen in this generation that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. Again, I'm not going to come down hard and dogmatic on this because even as you're reading the passage, it gets difficult. So let me just take my view apart now. You know, he says, so also when you see these things, verse 31, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I would take that to include verses 25 through 28 when he says these things because the kingdom of God is near. So then is he going to use these things to not refer to verses 20? I don't know. I don't totally know what this means. Here's what I know for sure. What if we if we are going to be I don't know that you can come down on a dogmatic stance on that verse and I I would caution you against that. In fact, I would caution you against that in all realms of understanding the coming of Jesus. Let's be very careful of saying I know exactly what this means. I know exactly what this means. I know exactly what this means. Now, I don't want to say just be all muddied about things, the whole everything will pan out in the end. Like, let's let's not go there, right? But but let's also not say, and I know exactly when everything is going to happen. It's okay to say I don't totally understand this. What I do know for sure is that heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Jesus will not pass away. That's the emphasis here, isn't it? He's saying these things will happen. For sure, you can count on it. The certainty of, the, in that time period, the destruction of Jerusalem, and for us, the certainty of the coming of Jesus. If you think about the certainty of the temple, remember, the temple is secure. Jerusalem is secure. There's no way it's being shut down. And Jesus says, it's going to fall apart. Isn't that how we view our world? I mean, it's going to be around forever, right? We think about all the different ways that the earth could be destroyed. And you know what we do about it? We make movies and entertain ourselves with them. We think about earthquakes ripping this world apart or asteroids or aliens invading. And we think about how the world could end. What happens at the end of every one of those movies? Human beings rise from the ashes and the world continues to exist. And Jesus says, it will not always continue to exist. Just as the temple was destroyed heaven and earth will pass away and make way for the new heavens and the new earth to come in. You can bank on it as sure as the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So too the earth 
and the heavens will be destroyed to make way for the coming of the Son of Man and his kingdom fully and finally. So that is for sure certain. And if, if we can hold on to that, the certainty of Jesus' words about the end times, if we, if we understand that, and if we have settled with Christ, if we, had, if we have come to him in repentance and faith, and we're, we have hope that when he comes, we will be found as his children, then that should change the way that we live. And that's where Jesus has been driving, isn't he? So verse, the, the way he ends it in verses 34 through 36 are with instructions on living in light of these things. Instructions on living in light of the certainty of what he says. These things will happen. So how should we act? What should we do? This is extremely practical. Let's just give two words so that you can think about these two words throughout the week. The instructions are watch and pray. Watch and pray. Verse 34. But watch yourselves. What are we supposed to watch? Are we supposed to watch the sky? Supposed to watch the news? We're supposed to watch that guy on TV that knows everything that's going to happen? No, what are we supposed to do? Watch yourself. He's coming. Watch yourself. Think about how you're living in light of the coming of Christ. We're to make sure that our hearts, he says, are not weighed down with certain things that would distract us and then allow the day of the Lord to take us by surprise like some sort of trap that would catch us. That, that imagery of your heart being weighed down. Have you ever felt that? My heart is just weighed down. I think, you know, maybe it's, it's just something that is it's all you can think about. Maybe you're waiting for the results of some sort of test that you had to take at your doctor's, and it's just sort of with you all the time. Or maybe you have a project at work that's just consuming everything that you do. Or you've put a job application into a church on the other side of the world, and that's all you can think about. You know, we all have experienced this, right? You go through life in this sort of fog. you got this one-track mind. You are weighed down with this one specific thing, and nothing else matters. Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't be weighed down. I get this picture of someone who's sort of hunched over and just sort of not, just has one thing on his mind and, and you can't think about anything else. And Jesus says, don't be weighed down such that you forget that Jesus is coming. And if you're weighed down like that, what's going to happen? It's going to happen and you're going to be, it's like you're going to get caught in a trap. He mentioned some things that, um, well, he said, I think the force is to be aware don't be distracted. Don't be weighed down. Remember that he's coming. And then he gives some things that weigh us down. Don't be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Those two things, I think, go together. Dissipation, not a word we use too much. Carousing, a little more familiar. Um, self-indulgence. It's actually the word that can be used for a hangover after a night of drinking. Isn't that interesting? The point here, and, and then he ties that with, with getting drunk specifically. He's saying don't, don't go along with, with people that are indulging themselves, drinking, partying. I thought that was a strange application at first, but then when you think about it, what's the response of people when you say the world's ending? Well, let's drink. You know, It's all coming to an end. You know, I might as well get high. Let's party. Let's do whatever we want. It's all going to be destroyed. Isn't that part of the, the, the natural response apart from Christ? That's what we do. It's all going to end, so let's just do whatever we want and party. And Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in that. 
Don't go down that path. Um, he's calling us to alertness, to focus. It's amazing how often when Jesus talks about the end times that he uses that imagery of be alert, don't be drunk. He's, he's always calling us to alertness, to soberness, to being awake, to having all our senses geared towards the fact that he will return and we need to live in light of that. So don't get drunk. That's that's a simple application, isn't it? <laughs> maybe you struggle with that. Or maybe you think that would be, you know, some days that's what I feel like. I just want to give up because it's all going to end and I just want to party and whatnot. Jesus says, don't do that. you got to stay alert. And then he gives something that may hit closer to home. Don't be dragged down. Don't be weighed down in your heart with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And I feel the weight of that, you know, just... The cares of this life, you know, day to day is hard. You got to go to work, and then you got to come home, and you got to do the dishes, and you got to, you know, I mean, there's just cares of this life is just anything and everything. And then when everything's going well, something breaks, right? Car breaks down, something happens here. The cares of this life weigh us down. They come on our backs like this huge weight, and they cause us to hunch over, as it were. And we can't think clearly. We're just caught in this fog of everything. And we get to the end of the day and we think, I haven't thought about anything that relates to eternity or to who Christ is or the fact that he's coming or have I lived for his kingdom. I've just kind of been thinking about, you know, what color am I going to paint the walls? Or, man, I forgot to run the dishwasher. Or, you know, just all the cares of this life, they bog us down. And Jesus is saying, don't don't get caught up in all of that stuff. And we live in an age of distraction, don't we? I mean, I keep thinking when I think about this hunched over thing, is all of us with our cell phones, right? There's there's conditions now. There's conditions for your neck, for they call it text neck. Did you know this? Where we're just, and I've seen videos of people walking through the mall, texting and walking into the fountain. Have you seen that at the mall? This is how we are living life. We live in this age of distraction. I don't know that it was. It's worse now. But it's certainly more accessible now, and there's more things to distract us, I think. So this is, a, this, is, this is really practical. What are the cares of this world for you? What distracts you? What keeps you from thinking about the reality of the fact that one day Jesus is going to break through the sky and come back and set up his kingdom, and that's what we need to be living for? So maybe here's some questions. What can you let go of that you feel like you need to hold on to? <laughs> Something that you think is so important, but you could just let go of that care, and it would really be okay. I want to ask questions like, what can I eliminate from my life that would cause me, that causes me to look down rather than to look up? What can, what can I get rid of? I'm not saying get rid of your cell phone, unless maybe God wants you to do that. But this idea of simplifying our lives to streamline, how can I simplify things? What, what, can I, what am I doing now that I really think I have to do that I really don't need to do? <laughs> that is weighing me down. What do I think I have? What do I have right now? What do I possess, own, that I think I really need to survive that I don't really need to survive? I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying we can get so weighed down with all of this stuff that we think we need that we just we forget what really matters. I think the contrast in that is because 
I've shared so many times that it, Jesus is not all about saying no, 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 get rid of these things, but also about saying yes. What is it that will keep me from looking down, but will actually cause me to look up and to look out? Because I think the way to contrast this being weighed down, what is dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this world? It's selfishness. It's me. I just want to do what I want to do. Self-indulgence. And I'm worried about all of my own things. And what would cause me to look up and to serve others and to serve Christ? How can I love others rather than serving myself? I think that was, that was, I was struck while Pastor Henry was reading Romans 13. That, that that's the tie in there. He talks about the commandments to love your neighbor as yourselves. And then he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Again, that idea. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light to get rid of these things that drag us down, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what we're called to do. Don't be weighed down by all this junk. Get rid of it and follow Christ. You know, one of the ways that helps me look up is to just to get away from all those distractions. They're, they're there when you come back, no doubt. But God has given us this beautiful world. And we live in a wonderful city with great places to go and take a hike in the woods. And to behold the creation of God and to recognize, wow, this world is bigger than my house. It's bigger than my cell phone. It's bigger than the laptop computer that I stare at all day. It's bigger. And one day, looking up at these clouds, Jesus is going to break through them. I want to live in light of that. I think that's good. I think we need to do more of that. I think about um, just a specific application to fathers. We can get weighed down with a lot of stuff, can't we? With, with kids that we, we want to give our kids everything. We get consumed with helping our kids do anything and everything. We want to teach them all that we can, and we can miss pointing them to the ultimate reality that Christ is returning. Let's not do that. Don't get weighed down with that stuff. So rather than being weighed down in this fog of drunkenness and self-indulgence and worldly cares, what are we supposed to do? Stay awake. Wake up. Let's wake up. And how do we stay awake? I love this. What does he say? He says, but stay awake at all times. How? By praying. <laughs> when I'm driving home on a long trip, sometimes I'm tired. And I've got lots of ways to keep myself awake. I roll down the windows, turn up the music, get some gum, get some coffee. I will even resort to hitting my face at times. Maybe you've done this. But you know what I don't do to stay awake? I don't pray. Because praying makes me fall asleep. And we've all experienced this, haven't we? I mean, if you if you have a one-track mind on something and you start praying, it goes into a 50-track mind and you think about anything and everything else. But So isn't it interesting here that Jesus says the way to stay awake is how? By praying. How do we stay alert? By praying. And how are we supposed to pray? Pray for what? For strength. We need strength. So it makes sense. Stay awake by praying that God would give you strength to stay awake. Pray for that. Now, and he says pray for strength to escape and to stand. Pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. All these things are coming. 
We live in a world of destruction and despair. We live in a world of persecution. We live in a world of cataclysmic events where things are happening all the time. And Jesus says, this is going to happen until I return. So pray that you would have strength to stand. I think the immediate context is for those that were going to go through this persecution, even in Jerusalem and outside, pray for strength to stand. But it extends to us that as we deal with all the pulls and the forces and the evil of this world, we need to pray for strength to escape all of these things, that we would be able to, to get through these things that are coming upon us. And not only to escape these things, but then to stand before the Son of Man. Again, think about that phrase where he says, to lift our heads because our redemption is near. Again, we're not weighed down. We're not staring down. We are lifting our heads. We are standing. We are ready to stand before the Son of God. Again, like we said last week, I don't want Jesus to come back and me be completely distracted by all the cares of this world. I don't want to be caught in self-indulgence. I don't want to be caught in any form of drunkenness that you could think of, where I'm just totally weighed down. I'm in some sort of fog where I'm not walking the way he wants me to. When he comes back, I want to be standing firm in the faith. And the only way I can do that, he says, is by staying awake and praying at all times. Which is really hard. I think even the disciples give us an example of that, don't they? When I say watch and pray, my mind immediately goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does Jesus say? Watch and pray that you won't enter into temptation. And what did the disciples do? Fall asleep. They fall asleep. And isn't that what we do? We, we, we try to pray and we fall asleep. Whether literally or figuratively, we get distracted. And so we need to keep fighting this fight. Keep praying. Keep watching. Keep fighting. But ultimately, my standing before the Son of God, I'm going to stand before the Son of God. It's not going to be because I watched really hard and I wasn't weighed down and I did all the good things I needed to do and I stayed awake and I prayed all the time. It's going to be because Jesus was able to stand in my place. And I stand before the Son of God, not based on my own merits, not based on the good things that I have done, but on the fact that Jesus came and did everything that I could not. That Jesus in chapter 22 through 24 has come to fulfill the law and then to die in my place and give me hope that I could stand before the Father. And when I stand, I'm not going to say, you should accept me, God, because I wasn't, I was never drunk. I never got caught up in the cares of this world. And, you know, I really prayed hard. I say, God, I am a sinner. And the only reason I can stand before you is because of what Christ has done. I stand in his righteousness his faithfulness, and the fact that he has paid the penalty for all the times that I got caught in self-indulgence, all the times that I was drunk, all the times I was weighed down with the cares of this world, all of the times that I didn't pray when I was supposed to, when I relied on my own strength and failed, Jesus stands in my place and he accepts the penalty for all those ways that I've failed, and I can stand before the Son of God on the last day. But if we know that's true, we are motivated to to watch ourselves and to pray, trying to stay awake at all times. So let's let's do that, right? I mean, we've thought about this is all coming. It is going to happen. It's a guarantee. Jesus will come back and it will affect every person who dwells on the face of the whole earth. And if we have put our faith in Christ, then let's watch ourselves 
not be weighed down. And let's pray. Let's pray for strength to escape and to stand. Luke closes this section. So I would say this section goes from where Jesus enters in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and teaches. And then he has this large teaching about the end times. Luke then summarizes it in verses 37 and 38. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount, called all of that. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. It's an interesting dichotomy. So Jesus is there in the temple and everyone is surrounding him, listening to him. But at night, he, he separates himself, as it were. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he's there. That's where he camps out at night. And then he comes into the temple. And there's this picture where he's accepted and yet he knows that he will be rejected. He doesn't entrust himself to anyone because he knows the hearts of all men. And we see that dichotomy is coming, that the, the storm clouds are forming. And chapters 22 and 23 will be here where Jesus makes it possible for us to stand by dying on the cross. You know, and when, he, when those events happen, Jesus sets in motion what's going to happen here. The coming and the return of the Son of Man. The come, when Jesus returns as King, he sets it in motion through his death. And we have this hope ahead of us. But that's true. We, we don't know all the details, do we? There's no folder that tells us exactly when everything is going to happen. We know it's going to happen. And if it's true, we should live in light of that. In the midst of all the wickedness in this world, I think the other cry of our heart is just, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make things right. And until then, we watch and we pray. Let's pray even now. Let me just pray for us. Father God, we thank you. We want to know when everything's going to happen. And yet in your wisdom, you have not told us. But we know for sure that you will return. Lord, let us be content with that. And let us live in light of that. Lord, we confess that we just get weighed down. And, and you, Lord, you know that. You were a man like us, Lord, except without sin, but you, you, you experienced the cares of this world. You were never weighed down by them, but you know the weakness of our flesh. Lord, help us. I pray you would expose, even in our own hearts, what, what we might get rid of. What are the things that are squelching and, 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 and squashing this desire, this desire to follow after you? What's making us tired? What's weighing us down? And Lord, make us the people that pray. We need your strength. Help us not to walk through life thinking we got it figured out. So even now, God, we pray. Give us strength, Lord. Let us stand. As we walk through trials and difficulties and persecutions this week, Jesus, help us to stand. Give us the strength to escape all these things and then to stand before you. Let us not be ashamed when you come, Lord. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.